Tim Joyce. I honestly yeah, man. did not even realize it's Wednesday until I know we're like even a few minutes late. It just kind of hit me like, oh crap, it's the shot time. So super happy about that because I needed this middle of the week break, man. Yeah, your energy level seems very, you know, you seem like you have a lot on, man. You're like you seem like you're balancing a lot of things. That's how your energy feels. Like you're kind of had a busy week. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm sure you do as well, given, you know, last week's stuff. So, I, you know, I think we're both uh, just, uh, yeah, lots, lots of balls kind of being juggled, you know, um, catching most of them, I think. But yeah, like right beforehand, you were, you were asking me like what the news and digital health and I feel like, like I'm so heads down with my own stuff right now. And um, I'm actually get to a conference or something like to kind of meet some people but i think that's not going to be until new year so um. <laughs> no we're we're um honestly we're looking forward to going to try to do a little bit of a break uh you know around christmas through new year so we just booked the trip to belisi georgia so uh, going right up okay. to christmas so at least unwind oh, but to your point I've, I've been adding the wtf justice uh show to my you know watch list Plus. and i just haven't been able to get to it just been yep. from dusk till dawn that's what, this, that's what this is for so i know i know this week so we this week we're we have a guest that i brought in so i brought in a phenomenal uh, medic uh professor john armstrong so i'm gonna let him in yeah and this is a good a, sorry hmm? go ahead well do the intro and then when he joins i'll yeah, no, what I like, what I love about this one is, you know, John's coming at, he's coming at the digital health space from truly from a clinical end. He's a medical director at the Health Beacon, but he's, he's invested in all kinds of projects. So, hey, John, I was just doing a poor job introducing you as you were walking in the, the call here. But no, I, keep, keep going, Jim, you're doing much better than I ever could. You're, you're, you're good at that stuff. <laughs> He's doing he's doing your 60 second pitch. Um, and, and I was just yeah, telling yeah. Jim before you joined, um, I couldn't find you on the interwebs. You know, I know we are <laughs> meticulously unproduced and we met briefly, um, you know, a couple of weeks back. Right. Um, but I couldn't find anything to. So I'm just <laughs> I'm, I'm going to enjoy today's discussion, getting to know you. Yeah, That's because yeah, so, I don't actually exist. I'm an avatar. <laughs> That's the digital <laughs> part. I'm a professor boss rather than a, you know an actual doctor. <laughs> no, but I, I love this one because also like John. So we have we have for the our millions of listeners out here, we have Professor John Armstrong, you know, uh, medical director to Health Beacon, advisor uh, to uh, Oyster uh, Capital, one of the investors. Um, just a fantastic guy that I think is smitten with the digital health space. And this is uh, you, you've, you've you've met Eugene virtually or, or through something, right? Like. So well, we, met in, we met in we, we met in Dublin, yeah. right? We yeah. met in Dublin. Ah, oh, the, that's, right. Uh, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. At the, at the I, I know that to get onto this podcast, you have to actually usually be from Barcelona, but no, we didn't meet in Barcelona. <laughs> I keep hearing Barcelona on all your podcasts. But but John is also a he's a, also a travel commentator. He's also a travel commentator, uh, or to some degree. But anyways, John, I'll, I'll let you for the millions of listeners introduce yourself for a moment, if you don't mind. Yeah, so my background is that I'm a radiation oncologist. So my specialty is to treat cancer patients with radiation as part of a multidisciplinary team. Uh, so I've been in the area of radiation oncology since 1985. I suppose what distinguishes my specialty is that we use very high-end technology 
with a vast amount of computerization. So a, a lot of the treatments we deliver are delivered by computer-driven machines. So I've always had a keen appreciation of what the, uh, what the technology can deliver in terms of patient care. My, um, my clinical practice is based in a number of places here in Dublin, and it's split between actual clinical care and uh, running clinical trials, and of course, the academic side of things, lecturing and teaching. So, uh, so I've got a long history of doing clinical trials, starting in 1997. Myself, myself and a guy called John Crown set up Irish Clinical Oncology Research Group. We had both come back from the States, and we saw how cooperative clinical trial structures could improve outcome for cancer patients by, by testing new treatments at the early stage of development and ultimately in the phase three randomized trials. And we saw there was a complete lack of that kind of infrastructure here in this country. So we set it up in 97 and it's, it's been a great success from when we started it, there was John, myself and the manager. Uh, and as, as you know, like all Irish organizations, the first item on the agenda was the dissolution of the organization. <laughs> um, but we yeah. survived. Uh, we survived all that. And now it's a really successful organization which is in receipt of health, re health research board funding and runs trials in collaboration with uh, international groups and, you know, investigator initiated trials based here in Ireland as well. So that's uh, that's my background. And my big interest in cancer has always been the clinical trials and the idea of finding new technology. Uh, which are promising and pushing them into the clinic uh, and trying to make that happen. Uh, and obviously, sometimes we do it. It's hypothesis driven that your idea is that you can come up with a clinical trial where in a particular scenario, you can make people live longer or have a better outcome or have less toxicity. But also yeah. it's because when we when we do clinical trials, we push the technological know-how in the country. And they, they've been the big drivers of my motivation to be involved in clinical trials and cancer over the years. Awesome. And where, where did you train again in the U.S.? And Memorial Sloan Kettering in New York, which uh, I was there for for uh, three years as a, a resident. And then I did five years on staff there and I ran the radiation research program for lung cancer there at that time. Yeah, very exciting time. That was when the computer technology was revolutionizing the way in which we design and deliver radiotherapy. Right. Did you, did you ever did you ever visit uh, all the way north in, in Manhattan, uh, a little district called Inwood? It was highly Irish. Uh, Inwood, all the way, almost on the border of the Bronx. So yeah, yeah, right, yeah. It's it, it, it's 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 not. Is it called Inwood? It's called. Um, I, I thought it was Inwood. Yeah, you know, I know exactly. I've been to the pubs there many a times. It's the, it's the <laughs> one. Because uh, <laughs> I went to Fordham in the Bronx. Yeah, yeah. I lived so in, so, I lived in subsidized that. housing in Manhattan for the eight years, and that was just a great, great place to live. <laughs> I don't know if you know the FDR Drive. There's uh, there's two buildings around just just north of the Queensboro Bridge where there's two buildings actually perched on stilts on the ah, on the yeah. FDR. I lived in one of those. That's awesome. That's awesome. Uh, and, and Jim, I did look this up. So what is Inwood? Uh, the neighborhood of Inwood in Manhattan still has an amazing amount of traces of strong Irish presence of the past. Blah 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 blah. Okay, Inwood. So I was right. Inwood. I N W O O D. Okay, uh, maybe I'm thinking I, I, of I was living in Washington Heights, and that's right okay. below Inwood. Inwood was okay. one up. Yeah. So anyway, okay, yeah, just yeah, that's connecting a, the New York that's dots. Point. That's how maybe John and I crossed <laughs> on the street somewhere back in the day. I don't know. Well, 
like yeah, he's well, from you know, the we would never have said hello people don't say hello when they cross in the street in new york <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's, all, it's all changed and then and then before we go in like so john and then also just on the like it, the investment side so you you do advisory for investors looking at investing in digital health companies like health beacon but also other stuff so maybe some sense on that yeah, so I, the background to that, Jim, is I've always been acutely aware that, you know, a massive percentage of G, GDP and, and public expenditure goes on healthcare. And yet when we trained as doctors in med school, uh, we never received a single lecture or course or tutorial on finance, on management, on anything. And even when you do your specialty training in, in medicine, it's sort of a taboo subject. So I've always been aware that this was the elephant in the room, that we made all these decisions about patient care in isolation from, from knowing the financial impact, or, or we would make financial expenditures and not be aware of the fact that we mightn't be getting good value for money at all on it. So it gave me a really keen appreciation of the need to get smart about how we do things. And then I got involved in um, the actual development from the ground up of some radiotherapy centers here in Ireland. And that taught me a lesson about, you know, how ultimately the finance dictates everything. So uh, that, that got me interested in that area of financial investment. So I advised a, a good pal of mine, Bill McCabe, who's the principal in Oyster Technology, about their financial investments. And um, they were really impressed with what they saw about Health Beacon at an angel, angel investor meeting. And so we started to look into your company. Yeah. And, there, and, so, and so just to connect the dots, they're our largest shareholder. Uh, got it. From Capital, yeah, but it, you know, I got to I got to get some other subjects in here before we go into the real thing. And sorry to ask other questions, but is um, so Isn't fish farming thing, and though? yeah, yeah, this, this is, is the real the thing. Real I want to get <laughs> no, I want to. I just want to share it with Eugene. I want to get like fish farming and travel. <laughs> so, well, that the fish. Okay, I'm a, I'm a lifelong angler who has you know gone over to the soft side of things. So now I keep koi carp. Uh, and I've got Bill interested in it as well. But let's just say that our investments better do better than our koi carp projects because we have been, we've been like, I don't know, I, I think our carp are called Moses. You know, they've put seven plagues upon us. We have just had a whole load of deaths from our koi carp. So uh, I won't, uh, you know, be putting that on my CV anytime soon. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. So go ahead. You know, I, I wanted to go a little bit. Um, you know, just as you're so passionate about kind of the the, the clinical trials, and we've had some guests um, on it more again on the digital side and the distributed and decentralized yeah. clinical trials. Where 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 are you with all of this? Because it feels like will some of this snap back, right, and go back to physical locations, or is it going to be kind of just curious what you're seeing out there. I suppose that going back to, you know, looking at clinical trials, what's wrong, what's good about them and what's wrong, what's bad about them? What's good about them is the obvious thing. We get to test things and we prove they work and, you know, evidence-based healthcare. And once we find that a treatment A is superior to treatment B, uh, you know, the government, et cetera, has to fund it. So that's that the, ultimately the great thing about it. And it also raises academic standards. Uh, and it also means that when you are doing a clinical trial, for instance, in Ireland, we sign up to an American clinical trial. We, we are committed in our hospital to doing everything for the patients on that trial, the way this bunch of, you know, tip top world experts have said it should be done. And, and once you start doing that in your department for, for John Smith, it's very hard not to do it for John Jones. So it has mm -hmm. this spillover effect. So ultimately, you know, I'm a real enthusiast about clinical trials. But what's wrong with them is that they've become so incredibly bureaucratic. 
and that goes back it, it to, to good origins always, but but bad bad implementation of those origins. So if we go back to the beginning, the Nuremberg medical trials it became obvious that we needed a whole ethical framework for the conduct of research on human subjects. And, and as the years have gone by, there has been episodes of fraud in clinical trials. And because of that, the, the government type bodies do what they always do. They come up with a vastly increased bureaucracy designed to solve the problem that has they've detected. And we live with each and every aspect of that bureaucracy going forward. So specifically at the moment in clinical trials, as I see it, um, the, the, the requirement for bureaucracy in terms of verification of data, delegation of responsibility logs. I mean, it would do your head in trying to, to, to be an investigator at present. It's so intensely bureaucratic. Um, so anything that can possibly reduce that burden has to be a good idea because the problem with this is that that bureaucracy is so expensive that it means that big pharma can definitely do the trials they want to do and they should be doing it because they come up with good products, no question about that. But little academics who've got a, an academic notion are made to operate according to the same incre incredibly rigorous bureaucratic standards. So it means if we want to ask a relatively simple academic question, it's incredibly expensive for us to do it. And our staff spend 90% of their time on mind-numbing bureaucrat bureaucratic paperwork. And raising, so, hmm? raising money as well. You know, and, and, and you've got to raise the money to do it. It's incredible. Yeah. So anything that can, so for instance, when we collect data, we bring someone into the clinic and we, we ask them how they are. We, we do a toxicity assessment. For instance, they're getting a new treatment. And that toxicity assessment is done face to face. And we've got to record all that data. And then it's all got to be verified and has to go into the system and has to be subject to rigorous quality checks, et cetera. If we can have a situation where patients are generating data at home all by themselves, for instance, we can have a different regulatory approach to that. We can say, this is patient-driven data fed live through an app, for instance, connected to a device like Health Beacon, and we know that it's coming direct from that source. It doesn't shouldn't need an additional level of um, bureaucratic assessment. And mm. if we look at it from the patient's point of view, if you, for instance, got cancer, where do you want to be? You want to be with your grandkids. You want to be at home with your spouse. You do not want to be sitting in my outpatients waiting to come in and see me yep. so we can sit together and fill in a few stupid forms. And, um, you know, really anything that gets the patient out of the hospital into the community, whether it be for assessments or for actual therapies like injectables or medication taking is a great idea. Mm -hmm. and and virtual clinical trials right i mean when when apple came onto the scene and you know the recruitment possibilities are just amazing right just from a sheer yeah. number so um how do you look at that and we also had uh michelle longmire from metabolt right so the decentralized right. platform that just raised they raised 300 mil um just recently so con again congrats to the team there but virtual clinical trials yeah, I mean, it's it, it, it does depend on what you're doing. You know, for instance, if your actual clinical intervention by definition has to be in a hospital, there's a limit to how far that can go. So if I'm testing a new type of radiation treatment, you know, you have to come to hospital for that. But for the follow-up assessments of that, there's absolutely no reason to be bringing the patient back and asking them, for instance, if they've got prostate cancer, how their sexual function is or how their urine function is or how their back passage is working. You can do all of that virtually. You can get a PSA blood test wherever they want it. And so absolutely, that's a great idea to be able to do that. I think, didn't CBS get involved in recruiting patients for one of the COVID vaccine trials? 
totally, totally. I, I don't know much about specifically. But they're I, actually I, spinning. I, I there's a whole it. business that they launched, right, on clinical trial recruitment, CVS. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, I yeah. read about it, but I don't know. I'm not. I'm not an no. expert in that. So yeah. I think commu community type research like that it has vast potential. Yeah. Wait, and where do you think? Like, so when you just thinking about um, like your area of oncology for a second, um, you know, and you know, like digital health, like Eugene, like, do you know digital tech opportunities within oncology? You know, what are you seeing out there? I mean, what, just tracking back, I mean, quite a lot. And, and again, right, so to me, um, I look at digital health very, uh, very much on sort of, I'll say in front or in uh, touchable, for lack of a better term, by the end consumer, right? I think it's been defined sort of broadly. And so if you go back to, you know, uh, pharma, I think there's a lot of AI companies that get bundled into digital health and finding new targets uh, and, and proteins and all of that. So I think um, there's been quite a lot of developments uh, back to kind of the digital therapies, but more on the mental health components surrounding oncology, right? Um, that's, I think, one of the key things that I've been seeing. I mean, let's face it, there's no digital technology today that can reduce a, um, and I mean, digital as in, you know, DTX yeah. or digital behavior change that can reduce a, a you know, a, a yeah, cancer, Yeah, I, th I think right? it's like a tumor. early detection, it's early detection, it's treatment, it's surrounding support systems, you know what I mean? Like you have the yep. skin cancer, you know, the, um, uh, you know, the kind of, that, that's, that's where, you know, like, um, like Steve diagnostic Sergeant. and support right that's kind of yeah, yeah, and then in yeah. between are sort of hard science around you know robotics and injections and and molecules and, right and if you think about that john do you see have, has anything come into clinical practice yet that's kind of clear other than doing virtual and telehealth appointments or no not really i mean obviously we're continuing to use artificial intelligence in my own specialty to try and augment the process of designing treatments um, right. But that's that's very much hospital-based. It's very high-end. Um, where I would see in oncology is, you know, the, the focus on oncology obviously is survivorship, but that's not the hardest thing in the world to assess, you know. Right. Got, you know, unfortunately, you're, you're either alive or you're not alive. But, this, uh, you know, for many patients, at least as important is quality of life. And quality of life extends into a lot of domains. There's general domains of quality of life when you've got cancer, you know, anxiety, stress, uh, insomnia, all these things you can think of. And then there's also uh, disease specific quality of life issues. Like uh, for instance, if you have a patient with breast cancer, you know, her body image, her sexuality, her intimacy, that there are a whole lot of things. And when we're looking at treatments, comparing treatments, we're always focused primarily on making people live longer. And we, we do try and the NCI for instance, have insisted that we have a lot more tools for measuring quality of life as part and parcel of our research trials, but it all costs money. And right. every questionnaire yeah. that you want filled in, you've got to get that filled in and you've got to you administer the questionnaire, you've got to analyze it, et cetera, et cetera. Right. And so I think it would be great if we had more automated ways of people using apps at home, uh, being able to fill in that data for us and feed that information to us so we could identify when we're comparing treatment A and treatment B, okay, maybe treatment A is better in terms of survival, but it comes really at an unacceptable quality of life cost. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you, you mentioned, like, sorry, I just wanted to comment on kind of the quality of life and, you know, questionnaires. And I think this is also part of the challenge. I think many people just think that launching an app that will help us in the healthcare system get information from that end patient 
but the patients are bombarded in their daily life and then yet another survey to fill out, right? Um, or, or something, right? Um, so I think it's also back to this, you know, where's the patient in the center of all of this and patient-led clinical design, clinical trial design um, has been picking up on the attention, right? Uh, quite, a, quite a bit. Absolutely, yeah. Patients really, sometimes they give you incredible insights into watch what is important to them. And you don't realize it unless you see it from their perspective. So most of the clinical trials we're designing now do have to have patient input. Most of the, or, the clinical trial organizations have a structure for getting patient input into the design of trials. And oftentimes patients will prioritize the type of trials they would like to see based on their experience to date. Mm -hmm. and, 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 like, and so John, like when you're thinking like, like what's got, like you're like, um, Eugene, we, John and I talk all the time about, you know, research, you know, like using, you know, obviously we're focused on using the health beacon and research, but like, you know, um, you seem super passionate about that area. Like what's inspired you about what could happen in clinical research? Yeah. So, you know, like take for instance, breast cancer, when a woman has an early stage breast cancer, we, we would often give them hormonal treatment as an adjuvant, which is a preventative. So, you know, the treatment you've given them is a very high chance of curing them, but this hormonal treatment improves the odds a bit. Well, the, the, that's the great part of it. The downside of it is that it's taking a tablet every day for five years, or sometimes it's an injection that the patient has to take. So being able to, uh, to monitor that and be sure about that adherence and persistence of that drug treatment is really, really important because when you do look at it, we realize, when you analyze it carefully, we realize that patients, put, even on trials, don't stick to their medication regimen the way we think they do. And there are two dangers there, as I see it, if you have a, or two risks. If you have a potentially quite toxic drug and in your clinical trial, you think everybody's taking it every day and they're not, and you see, you know, a small amount of toxicities, you may miss the fact that that toxicity is occurring predominantly in the patients who are taking it every day the way they're supposed to. Right. And so you can underestimate toxicity and overestimate the required dose. And a similar problem might be that if you have, if testing a brand new drug, for instance, and it turns out it didn't work, well, if it didn't work globally in your clinical trial, if you know the adherence, you might find that there's a subset of patients with optimal adherence, say greater than 80%, and wow, it did work for those patients. And so rather than throwing away a drug that can benefit the drug company and benefit humanity, you go back and rerun the trial, ensuring you've got optimal adherence. So the, 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 the whole thing about how much of the drug is actually being taken is an elephant in the room when you try to analyze outcome. And, you know, the, the essence of good science is to eliminate as many variables as you can in your experimental design. And we are not paying proper attention to adherence and the tools that are being used, like um, medical possession ratios and diaries and pill counts. You know, they're very primitive and they're subject to all sorts of errors. So real time monitoring of what patients are taking when they're on a clinical trial is hugely attractive. Mm -hmm. So yes. something like um, Proteus, which sort of went belly up, right? I um, mean, you would think right. that that's like a... Yeah, I mean, you would think that that's probably one of the best tools um, to track through the clinical trials. But then again, sort of from a cost perspective, incorporating that into the treatment plan, right? Um, so it's um, kind of how do you weigh the, right. the great technology that, you know, ultimately sold for, I guess, almost nothing back to Atsuka, right? Um, yeah. 
in the patient experience, you know, like, like that, you know, like I, like I have huge respect for uh, the Proteus, uh, you know, endeavor, you know, uh, however, that's kind of now morphed itself in that, that, you know, so Proteus was an early, you know, they had raised like 500 million or something, you know, an enormous amount of capital. Um, they were putting, uh, what were they doing exactly, Eugene? They put some, they put a tag on, uh, you ingested a pill. It's a, it's a pill, came, right? It's a device. And then it comes, uh, uh, the, the Proteus gosh. version came with almost like a Band-Aid kind of thing. And it would just read off yeah. of the, uh, the pill. That, and they could you know, see it going through your system. But, yeah. you know, but the, the patient group, I think they started with was like schizophrenics, wasn't it? I think so. Yeah. I remember I don't, right that yet. I don't remember. Yeah. 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 But I always thought like, it, like I, I, I was definitely not going to be the entrepreneur that tried to get schizophrenics to ingest tracking pills. <laughs> I was definitely not going to go down that path of all my, of all the projects I've taken on in my life. I'm going to go something easier. <laughs> uh, I mean, we, we, we both know that uh, you're full of great ideas. Uh, that's how Health Beacon was born, but I agree that you probably, you know, that's, that, that's, that's crossing the line we, for we've, you. We've got enough schizophrenics on our staff. <laughs> Uh, yeah, but, you know, to, to, to talk to the specifics of Health Beacon, you know, the advantage of that product is that you, you've got a need there, which is a physical pragmatic need. You, you have to get rid of your, you know, dispose of your sharps safely because it's a sharp, sharp smart screen. It gives you the edge in terms of the patients with a need to use it and a need to engage with it. And I think engagement is one of the biggest problems that we're seeing as, uh, as a difficulty for, for this whole connected health. You know, there are all sorts of devices that can do all sorts of things, but if the patients don't commit to them and, and uh, engage with them in the first place and stick with them, they're a very limited capacity or very limited uh, use. You know what I was always wondering was this idea that, you know, this idea that patients start, you know, volunteering their data. Like if you said, you know, so you, you start to become like an N of one trial, like your, you know, your life is like, you know, you know, we're all going to, you know, eventually, you know, unfortunately at some stage in our life, our health declines, right. And we move on, but, you know, so you have like an N of one trial where you're, you're constantly advancing your health and your treatment and your, your clinical status, like whatever that is. And then, you know, then you're introducing new things into your life, like you're introducing medicines or you're interesting other stuff, but you're kind of like constantly volunteering your data forwards towards like, you know, people like John who are analyzing it for it. And then you're introducing into it. But I kind of, you know, I'm constantly a subject of a clinical trial. <laughs> I mean, yeah, well, you sounds... know, go ahead. Don't forget the Framingham study in, in Massachusetts where a whole town con committed to, uh, providing all their biometric type data for decades. And it's been extraordinarily useful. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I, forget, I forget about that one. You know, I remember yeah. I, I, loosely, so they they gave all their like just- They, they measured every, the entire population, they measured everything, blood pressure, weight, everything. But you know, one of the best things that came from it was I remember a paper in the New England Journal of Medicine decades ago, where they looked at the weight of the population. Now it may not have been from Framingham, but it was one of these population-based cohort studies. And they looked at average weight as the year went by. And you got to Easter and it went up a gram. And it didn't go down that gram again. And then you get to, you know, July the 4th, another gram. Labor Day, a gram. Thanksgiving, yeah. three grams. Christmas, Hanukkah, five grams. Just never went down. Really fascinating graph. I feel I like going for a run after this. I yeah. feel like going for a run after this. Cleveland Clinic going to the gym. That. Cleveland Clinic does that. I remember, you know, talking to our friends at Cleveland Clinic and they, they kind of weigh their population as they're coming into the office, but do it in an anonymized way. I, I, I thought they did, you know, so you're, you're, you're effectively being weighed every day, but over a population. So they can see if the, 
they can see oh. if they're losing weight or gaining weight as an organization, you know, wow. on, um, which is pretty cool. Like where, you know, they're, but they're gaining like thousands of pounds <laughs> you know, during Easter as an organization. <laughs> <laughs> um, also, I mean, uh, Esther Dyson's uh, way to uh, Wellville, right? They're doing like community-based and I forget how many communities they picked, but sort of community yeah. care and yeah. So lo lots of efforts going on. And I guess the question is, how do we really scale all that out of pilots and interesting data to real world, right? That's, that's always the challenge with a lot of these. We should definitely, uh, who, who, so who, it, who set up our, um, the decentralized clinical trial organization? Who's our decentralized clinical trial uh, lead that was on our podcast uh, just not too long ago? Oh, Michelle. Michelle. Well, we, had Michelle. we had Michelle. Yeah, we had Michelle. Well, oh, um, um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm blanking. Amir. Amir. Is it Amir? Oh, yeah. Yeah. The, yeah, yeah Amir. Amir. Yeah. I, I heard Amir. his podcast. Yeah. 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 Did you listen to his podcast? Yeah. And what, like, when you think about that, like, we should definitely uh, hook you into Amir. And, and he came from a background of working in quintiles, right? And, um, you know, the big clinical research. Did, what'd you, what'd you, did you get a chance to kind of look at that as a concept like the decentralized? Yeah, I mean, to, to me, the, the biggest thing that I don't get is I don't understand why these companies investing in really expensive injectable products, when they do their trials at the outset, why they don't decide to do something to have a really better handle on this parameter. Um, right. I just don't get that. Uh, so, and, and I'm not addressing your question particularly, but there's something else I've got to mention about another thought about if you're, if you're monitoring adherence in the community on a clinical trial or indeed in clinical practice, when you see someone drop off and stop taking their medicine when they have been taking it before, that's a red flag, not just for adherence, but if you're, if you're using an experimental product or, or testing a new product, it's also a red flag for toxicity that right. that could warrant an intervention to prevent a serious mm -hmm. adverse event from actually yeah. blossoming from a minor issue to a major issue. Yeah, that's fascinating, right? Like this kind of like, what's the, what's the expression, the difference between, you know, a cure, you know, a cure and a poison is dose. It was, is it, is that expression? Yeah, so it could be a narrow, <laughs> it's a narrow thing. Yeah. Right. And, and, and that, and that whole, yeah. And cancer, that's so key, right? Like that's so key is that balance of how much treatment, you know, what's the tolerance level and it's, and it's very individualized, I'd imagine. So that's kind of done on, um, you know, over course of population and, and you know, and John, yeah. You know, and I the, mean, these toxic events can occur kind of precipitously, you know, you can talk to someone who's fine today and tomorrow their you know, their immune system is, is clapped out. It can happen right. really quickly. Like in real time, like, you and know, we, we, unfortunately, no matter how much we educate patients, we persistently see situations where patients and their families don't appreciate the significance of a deterioration in between cycles of treatment, for instance, and right. they might be at home and may not realize the necessity of getting that family member to an A&E, to an ER straight away. You see that all the right. time. So anything that puts us in better connection with patients when they're not in the hospital is, is really advantageous on clinical trials. Right, right. right. Eugene, you, know, you were going to say something. Yeah, um, I mean, it's it's interesting how you. I mean, obviously, you have such passion for research and uh, and science, right? And then to you, to kind of Jim's introduction of you, you also advise a venture fund, um, which you know looks at how do you really commercialize these great technologies and research, and how do you look of going from research to that commercial? Like, what 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 in your head is like? How do you get it there? Right? Because typically. Uh, and again, stereotypically, uh, 
if you're doing science in the lab, generally you're not great in sort of commercializing things. And in many cases, the vice versa, right? You can be a great commercial, but you don't necessarily understand the science. And I think you being sort of that bridge to a certain extent, right? Um, and how do you look at the commercializing science? Well, to go back to your earlier question about the connection between the lab and the clinic, you know, that's a really important one that we, we are dealing with better than we ever used to. We're doing a lot of what we call translational research. So people who've got lab-driven hypotheses um, for instance, I'm working with uh, a professor Pennington in the Conway Institute in UCD, where his hypothesis is he can detect molecular fingerprints, if you like, in terms of the proteins in the blood of patients with prostate cancer who've had treatment and who, you know, might be experiencing toxicity or about to experience a relapse. He thinks he can find a fingerprint before conventional methods. So in the past, he would have just taken samples from patients willy-nilly and there wouldn't have been any control. So what we've done is we've linked his research rigidly in with our clinical trial program so that the data that he's he's getting about the patients is absolutely clean and uh, therefore the correlation between what he's seeing is not being muddied by clinical factors that he's completely unaware of so that that's one bridge that that has been is is happening progressively and there's a great realization that we can we can make progress quicker if we do that with regard to the commercialization uh, the thing that's really always struck me in oncology is the relative power of of oncology drugs versus radiation oncology versus surgical oncology, that it, when a new drug comes out, it is relatively easy at community level to take that new effective drug and start administering it. Sometimes there's a paradigm shift in how the drugs work. When we went from conventional you know, chemotherapy that whacks your marrow to sort of immune, immune stimulating drugs. Okay, so there was a whole education shift there, but it's a relatively easy product to, uh, process to take a successful drug into the community. Unfortunately, radiotherapy processes don't come in a little pill container with a label. We have to buy machinery and we have to educate ourselves and figure out how to do, do these things. And that's why, for me, the clinical trials have been really, really important to push ourselves into that situation where we're, we're pushing the technology boat out and using it on a routine basis. And um, how to get technology in to, to, to get good clinical practice to commercialize it. Um, that's a different issue. I've never been involved in where my research has ever gone commercial, although there's quite a, quite a potential for the work I'm doing with Steve Pennington in the lab, that if we did de detect a molecular signature like that, that could be really, that could have huge commercial potential. Mm -hmm. When you're, when you look in, you know, when you're advising, uh, you know, an investment, you're, you're walking in saying, okay, let me, let your role in that case is let me test the science. Let me test the rigor. Let me put my own intuition against it is that the kind of role you're playing in that sense yeah yeah and, and as you know jim i stay away from the finance of it because it's not my strength what i really try and look at is you know what's the scientific hypothesis behind what they're doing and and sometimes they can have a great idea but unfortunately it may be yeah. you know there may be many other companies looking at the same thing do they have anything really unique and then of course you're looking at the the management team and all the usual things you look at as, as an investor but you're trying to find somebody that's come up with something unique and we have not invested in a lot of companies and i have to say that with, I can think of one exception that we said no to, we haven't been sorry that we didn't invest in them. You know, there's a lot of startup companies in healthcare uh, fall flat in their face. You know, we've seen several companies that have had great ideas, but unfortunately, you just don't think they're ever going to get into the market ahead of bigger companies, perhaps with less brilliant ideas. Yeah. 
Awesome. Awesome. Idea, ideas are cheap, right? It's the execution yeah. and the validity of those ideas. So I was hoping we were going to go down the conversation. I know we were talk serious stuff. We were going to talk about the Amazon. Like uh, John went on a trip to the Amazon. Was it two years ago? <laughs> was that, yeah. that was I'm going game for that. Sideways. Let's hear this one. <laughs> you, know, you know, when you said Amazon, I thought you were going to say about Amazon health. But I, I was at the American <laughs> Society of Therapeutic Radiology Oncology a couple of years ago. And that was an absolute, I saw an absolutely inspirational talk by a guy from Colorado. He was an A&E doctor. I can't remember his name, but he, his, the, comp, the topic of his conversation was the patient will see you now. Right. And he just stood the whole of healthcare up on its head and said, you know, remember when, you know, you had to call for a taxi and wait and along came Uber and all these other companies. And then, you know, the, the, the companies that have totally disrupted air travel. Uh, I'm not talking about COVID. I'm talking about the companies. Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> COVID has certainly screwed that up. COVID's been the ultimate disruptive technology. So he said, you know, healthcare is just phenomenally broken. Um, and it's there is a desperate need to have huge big organizations like Amazon and Google really come into the space and redictate it. So you can imagine a scenario where a patient signs up to Google Health and by signing up to Google Health, they're effectively they're, they're their health management entity and they do everything for them. They, you know, get them talk to a put them talking to a bot in the morning. They, uh, you know, look at their app that's that's con connected to their inhaler. They figure out that their asthma is out of control. They monitor the pollen count in their city. They know their route to work and they figure it's bad news if John goes to work this morning. So they notify his boss that John's not going to work this morning. John is told, take two extra inhalers. And as he's taking his inhalers, it's measuring how his breathing is while it's doing this. And then it's simultaneously ordering an extra medicine for him because if it knows he needs another medicine. And if John wants to talk to his doctor, he talks to you know the the bot of his choice. Yeah. And John, I think so, I think it just dawned on me. Eric Topol. Eric Topol. Eric Topol. I think yeah. that's who wrote the book, at least the patient will see you now. So I'm assuming that, that was the, yeah. the speech. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and speaking of books, the kind of what you're sort of describing is a bit uh the circle. Have you guys read or seen the movie? Oh, yeah, yeah, the yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So, I mean it's a little bit different context, but uh still but, but no but notice John still didn't talk about the Amazon itself trip. <laughs> <laughs> did you do like ayahuasca there or something i don't know no we we, we we went there a few years ago and it's been a, you know it's a keen angler it was a lifelong dream of mine I, i'm sorry to say the fishing was extremely disappointing but the place was absolutely awesome we went to the peruvian amazon and you're three days where all you see is mud and jungle go by and it's just a beautiful place lots of dolphins pink and gray and wow. lots of piranhas yeah. caimans awesome. great awesome. place <laughs> so I just I just got myself a VR set this weekend. I I went in for a USB you know charger and I walked out with a Oculus. Um, so just I think a straight gonna, Oculus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just uh, yeah. yeah. I don't know. Just it was one of those things. Just like looked at me and I was like, hmm, I haven't actually done that. But I'm gonna. The reason I brought it up is I think uh, I'm just gonna download like an Amazon trip something. Yeah. The metaverse. The metaverse. Yeah, the, the meta the metaverse. Welcome to the metaverse. Um I'm just looking cool. at the time, Jim. Is it is it is it time for your famous question? Yeah, John. I don't know if I prepped you on this one prop properly, but I so hey, we're you... we're meticulously unproduced, Jim. So, so so this is not the Graham Norton show where if I don't give a good answer, I get you know ejected out of my chair backwards, no. is it? No, 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 you just answer. get muted. You just get muted. <laughs> This is yeah. This is a happy place. This is just Eugene and Jim's happy place here. It is. <laughs> so picture yourself 
a, uh, a young medic just back from training at, you know, one of the top medical institutions, you, you're, you're Irish by origin and you arrive back in Ireland and you're starting up a new company um, and you're pitching and you get a phenomenal idea about, you know, introducing, you know, digital, uh, digital tools into clinical trials. What advice would the Professor John Armstrong give to that young entrepreneur as they're starting off their company? I think know your clinical space really, really well. Have an absolute in-depth knowledge of the clinical space that you're trying to do this in and focus on one area and, and, and try and look at it from what part is broken and what part is fixed. So if there's something being done well and consistently well, there's no point in disrupting that. But if you look at a domain of healthcare and you can see that this, this is not working, the patients aren't happy, the staff aren't happy, the outcomes aren't good, I would try and find that weak, weak point and focus on it. Awesome. Focus. That was perfect. That was like a 60 second pitch to the entrepreneur. That's I think, awesome. I think that might've been the best one. That might've been the yeah. best one. Yeah. <laughs> well, We've John, so unfortunately I won't be able to tag you on LinkedIn. So, um, you know, we'll, I'm we'll just have to, you're linked out, uh, but it was a pleasure getting to know you. Um, uh, and thank you for joining us tonight. Thank you, yeah. Eugene. Thanks, John. Cheers. Well done. Well done. Cheers. And, Thanks, guys. And to, and to the millions of listeners, follow, subscribe, and pass it on. <laughs>